The Boats of the Glen Carrig by William Hope Hodgson. Being an account of their adventures in the strange places of the earth after the foundering of the good ship Glen Carrig through striking upon a hidden rock in the unknown seas to the southward, as told by John Winterstraw, gentleman, to his son James Winterstraw in the year 1757, and by him committed very properly and legibly to manuscript. Chapter 12 The Making of the Great Bow The fourth night upon the island was the first to pass without incident. It is true that a light showed from the hulk out in the weed, but now that we had made some acquaintance with her inmates, it was no longer a cause for excitement, so much as contemplation. As for the valley where the vile things had made an end of Job, it was very silent and desolate under the moonlight. For I made a point to go and view it during my time on watch, yet for all that it lay empty, it was very eerie and a place to conjure up uncomfortable thoughts so that I spent no great time pondering it. This was the second night on which we had been free from the terror of the devil things, and it seemed to me that the great fire had put them in fear of us and driven them away. But of the truth or error of this idea, I was to learn later. Now it must be admitted that, apart from a short look into the valley and occasional starings at the lights out in the weed, I gave little attention to aught but my plans for the great bow, and to such use did I put my time that when I was relieved I had each particular and detail worked out, so that I knew very well what to set the men doing so soon as we should make a start in the morning. Presently, when the morning had come and we had made an end of breakfast, we turned to upon the great bow, the boatswain directing the men under my supervision. Now, the first matter to which I bent attention was the raising to the top of the hill of the remaining half of that portion of the topmast which the boatswain had split in twain to procure the batten for the boat. To this end, we went down, all of us, to the beach where lay the wreckage, and getting about the portion which I intended to use, carried it to the foot of the hill. Then we sent a man to the top to let down the rope by which we had moored the boat to the sea anchor, and when we had bent this on securely to the piece of timber, we returned to the hilltop and tailed up to the rope, and so presently, after much weariful pulling, had it up. The next thing I desired was that the split face of the timber would be rubbed straight, 
and this the boatswain understood to do. And whilst he was about it, I went with some of the men to the grove of reeds, and here, with great care, I made a selection of some of the finest, these being for the bow, and after that I cut some which were very clean and straight, intending them for the great arrows. With these we returned once more to the camp, and there I set to and trimmed them of their leaves, keeping these latter, for I had a use for them. Then I took a dozen reeds and cut them each to a length of twenty-five feet, and afterwards notched them for the strings. In the meanwhile, I had sent two men down to the wreckage of the masts to cut away a couple of the hempen shrouds and bring them to the camp. And they, appearing about this time, I set to work to unlay the shrouds, so that they might get out the fine white yarns which lay beneath the outer covering of tar and blacking. These, when they had come at them, we found to be very good and sound, and this being so, I bid them make three yarn senet, meeting it for the strings of the bows. Now it will be observed that I have said bows, and this I will explain. It had been my original intention to make one great bow, lashing a dozen of the reeds together for the purpose, but this, upon pondering it, I conceived to be but a poor plan for there would be much life and power lost in the rendering of each piece through the lashings when the bow was released. To obviate this, and further to compass the bending of the bow, the which had at first been a source of puzzlement to me as to how it was to be accomplished, I had determined to make twelve separate bows, and these I intended to fasten at the end of the stalk one above the other, so that they were all in one plane vertically. And because of this conception, I should be able to bend the bows one at a time, and slip each string over the catch notch, and afterwards frap the twelve strings together in the middle part, so that they would be but one string to the butt of the arrow. All this I explained to the boatswain, who indeed had been exercised in his own mind as to how we should be able to bend such a bow as I intended to make and he was mightily pleased with my method of evading this difficulty, and also the other, which else had been greater than the bending, and that was the stringing of the bow, which would have proved a very awkward work. Presently, the boatswain called out to me that he had got the surface of the stock sufficiently smooth and nice, and at that I went over to him, for now I wished him to burn a slight groove down the center, running from end to end, and this I desired to be done very exactly, for upon it depended much of the true flight of the arrow. Then I went back to my own work, for I had not yet finished notching the bows. Presently, when I had made an end of this, I called for a length of the senate, and with the aid of another man contrived to string one of the bows. This, when I had finished, I found to be very springy, and so stiff to bend, that I had all that I could manage to do so, and at this I felt very satisfied. Presently, it occurred to me that I should do well to set some of the men to work upon the line which the arrow was to carry, for I had determined that this should be made also from the white hemp yarns and for the sake of lightness I conceived that one thickness of yarn would be sufficient, but so that it might compass enough of strength, I bid them split the yarns and lay the two halves up together, and in this manner they made me a very light and sound line, 
though it must not be supposed that it was finished at once, for I needed over half a mile of it, and thus it was later finished than the bow itself. Having now gotten all things in train, I set me down to work upon one of the arrows, for I was anxious to see what sort of a fist I should make of them, knowing how much would depend upon the balance and truth of the missile. In the end, I made a very fair one, feathering it with its own leaves, truing and smoothing it with my knife, after which I inserted a small bolt in the forward end to act as a head, and as I conceived to give it balance, though whether I was right in this latter, I am unable to say. Yet before I had finished my arrow, the boatswain had made the groove and called me over to him that I might admire it, the which I did, for it was done with a wonderful neatness. Now I have been so busy with my description of how we made the great bow, that I have omitted to tell of the flight of time, and how we had eaten our dinner this long while since, and how that the people in the hulk had waved to us, and we had returned their signals, and then written upon a length of the canvas the one word, wait. And besides all this, some had gathered our fuel for the coming night. And so, presently, the evening came upon us, but we ceased not to work, for the boatswain bade the men to light a second great fire beside our former one, and by the light of this we worked another long spell, though it seemed short enough by reason of the interest of the work. Yet at last the boatswain bade us to stop and make supper, which we did, and after that he set the watches, and the rest of us turned in, for we were very weary. In spite of my previous weariness, when the man whom I relieved called me to take my watch, I felt very fresh and wide awake, and spent a great part of the time, as on the preceding night, in studying over my plans for completing the great bow. And it was then that I decided finally in what manner I would secure the bows athwart the end of the stock, for until then I had been in some little doubt, being divided between several methods. Now, however, I concluded to make twelve grooves across the sawn end of the stock, and fit the middles of the bows into these, one above the other, as I have already mentioned, and then to lash them at each side to bolts driven into the sides of the stock. And with this idea I was very well pleased, for it promised to make them secure, and this without any great amount of work. Now, though I spent much of my watch in thinking over the details of my prodigious weapon, yet it must not be supposed that I neglected to perform my duty as watchman, for I walked continually about the top of the hill, keeping my cut and thrust ready for any sudden emergency. Yet my time passed off quietly enough, though it is true that I witnessed one thing which brought me a short spell of disquiet thought. It was in this wise. I had come to that part of the hilltop which overhung the valley, and it came to me, abruptly, to go near to the edge and look over. Thus the moon being very bright, and the desolation of the valley reasonably clear to the eye, it appeared to me, as I looked, that I saw a movement among certain of the fungi which had not burnt, but stood up shriveled and blackened in the valley. 
Yet by no means could I be sure that it was not a sudden fancy, born of the eeriness of that desolate-looking veil, the more so as I was like to be deceived because of the uncertainty which the light of the moon gives. Yet to prove my doubts, I went back until I had found a piece of rock easy to throw, and this, taking a short run, I cast into the valley, aiming at the spot where it had seemed to me that there had been a movement. Immediately upon this, I caught a glimpse of some moving thing, and then, more to my right, something else stirred, and at this I looked towards it, but could discover nothing. Then, looking back at the clump at which I had aimed my missile, I saw that the slime-covered pool which lay near was all a quiver, or so it seemed. Yet the next instant I was just as full of doubt, for even as I watched it I perceived that it was quite still, and after that for some time I kept a very strict gaze into the valley, yet I could nowhere discover aught to prove my suspicions, and at last I ceased from watching it, for I feared to grow fanciful, and so wandered to that part of the hill which overlooked the weed. Presently, when I had been relieved, I returned to sleep, and so till the morning. Then, when we had made each of us a hasty breakfast, for all were grown mightily keen to see the great bow completed, we set to upon it, each at our appointed task. Thus the boatswain and I made it our work to make the twelve grooves athwart the flat end of the stock, into which I proposed to fit and lash the bows, and this was accomplished by means of the iron futtock shroud, which we heated in its middle part, and then, each taking an end, protecting our hands with canvas, we went one on each side and applied the iron until at length we had the grooves burnt out very nicely and accurately. This work occupied us all the morning, for the grooves had to be deeply burnt, and in the meantime the men had completed near enough senate for the stringing of the bows, yet those who were at work on the line which the arrow was to carry had scarce made more than half so that I called off one man from the Senate to turn to and give them a hand with the making of the line. When dinner was ended, the boatswain and I set to about fitting the bows into their places, which we did, and lashed them to twenty-four bolts, twelve aside, driven into the timber of the stock about twelve inches in from the end, after this, we bent and strung the bows, taking very great care to have each bent exactly as the one below it, for we started at the bottom. And so, before sunset, we had that part of our work ended. Now, because the two fires which we had lit on the previous night had exhausted our fuel, the boatswain deemed it prudent to cease work and go down all of us to bring up a fresh supply of the dry seaweed and some bundles of the reeds. This we did, making an end of our journeyings just as the dusk came over the island. Then, having made a second fire, as on the preceding night, we had first our supper, and after that another spell of work, all the men turning to upon the line which the arrow was to carry, whilst the boatswain and I set to, each of us, upon the making of a fresh arrow, for I had realized that we should have to make one or two flights before we could hope to find our range and make true our aim. Later, 
Maybe about nine of the night, the bosun bade us all to put away our work, and then he set the watches, after which the rest of us went into the tent to sleep, for the strength of the wind made the shelter a very pleasant thing. That night, when it came my turn to watch, I minded me to take a look into the valley, but though I watched at intervals through the half of an hour, I saw nothing to lead me to imagine that I had indeed seen aught on the previous night, and so I felt more confident in my mind that we should be troubled no further by the devil things which had destroyed poor Job. Yet I must record one thing which I saw during my watch, though this was from the edge of the hilltop which overlooked the weed continent and was not in the valley, but in the stretch of clear water which lay between the island and the weed. As I saw it, it seemed to me that a number of great fish were swimming across from the island diagonally towards the great continent of weed. They were swimming in one wake, keeping a very regular line, but not breaking the water after the manner of porpoises or blackfish. Yet though I have mentioned this, it must not be supposed that I saw any very strange thing in such a sight and indeed I thought nothing more of it than to wonder what sort of fish they might be. For, as I saw them indistinctly in the moonlight, they made a queer appearance, seeming each of them to be possessed of two tails. And further, I could have thought I perceived a flicker, as of tentacles just beneath the surface, but of this I was by no means sure. Upon the following morning, having hurried our breakfast, each of us set to again upon our tasks, for we were in hopes to have the great bow at work before dinner. Soon the boatswain had finished his arrow, and mine was completed very shortly after, so that there lacked nothing now to the completion of our work, save the finishing of the line and the getting of the bow into position. This latter, assisted by the men, we proceeded now to effect making a level bed of rocks near the edge of the hill which overlooked the weed. Upon this we placed the great bow, and then, having sent the men back to their work at the line, we proceeded to the aiming of the huge weapon. Now, when we had gotten the instrument pointed, as we conceived, straight over the hulk, the which we accomplished by squinting along the groove which the bosun had burnt down the center of the stock, we turned to upon the arranging of the notch and trigger the notch being to hold the strings when the weapon was set, and the trigger, a board bolted on loosely at the side just below the notch, to push them upwards out of this place when we desired to discharge the bow. This part of the work took up no great portion of our time, and soon we had all ready for our first flight. Then we commenced to set the bows, bending the bottom one first, and then those above in turn, until all were set and after that we laid the arrow very carefully in the groove. Then I took two pieces of spun yarn and frapped the strings together at each end of the notch, and by this means I was assured that all the strings would act in unison when striking the butt of the arrow. And so we had all things ready for the discharge, whereupon I placed my foot upon the trigger, and bidding the bosun watch carefully the flight of the arrow pushed downwards. The next instant, with a mighty twang and a quiver that made the great stock stir on its bed of rocks, the bow sprang to its lesser tension, hurling the arrow outwards and upwards in a vast arc. Now it may be conceived with what mortal interest we watched its flight, and so in a minute discovered that we had aimed too much to the right, 
for the arrow struck the weed ahead of the hulk, but beyond it. At that I was filled near to bursting with pride and joy, and the men who had come forward to witness the trial shouted to acclaim my success, whilst the boatswain clapped me twice upon the shoulder to signify his regard and shouted as loud as any. And now it seemed to me that we had but to get the true aim, and the rescue of those in the hulk would be but a matter of another day or two, for having once gotten a line to the hulk, we should haul across a thin rope by its means, and with this a thicker one, after which we should set this up so taut as possible, and then bring the people in the hulk to the island by means of a seat and block which we should haul to and fro along the supporting line. Now, having realized that the bow would indeed carry so far as the wreck, we made haste to try our second arrow, and at the same time we bade the men go back to their work upon the line, for we should have need of it in a very little while. Presently, having pointed the bow more to the left, I took the frappings off the strings so that we could bend the bows singly, and after that we set the great weapon again. Then seeing that the arrow was straight in the groove, I replaced the frappings and immediately discharged it. This time, to my very great pleasure and pride, the arrow went with a wonderful straightness towards the ship, and clearing the superstructure, passed out of sight as it fell behind it. At this, I was all impatience to try to get the line to the hulk before we made our dinner, but the men had not yet laid up sufficient, there being then only 450 fathoms, which the boatswain measured off by stretching it along his arms and across his chest. This being so, we went to dinner, and made very great haste through it, and, after that, every one of us worked at the line, and so in about an hour we had sufficient, for I had estimated that it would not be wise to make the attempt with a less length than five hundred fathoms. Having now completed a sufficiency of the line, the boatswain set one of the men to flake it down very carefully upon the rock beside the bow, whilst he himself tested it at all such parts as he thought in any way doubtful, and so presently all was ready. Then I bent it onto the arrow, and having set the bow whilst the men were flaking down the line, I was prepared immediately to discharge the weapon. Now, all the morning, man upon the hulk had observed us through a spyglass from a position that brought his head just above the edge of the superstructure, and being aware of our intentions, having watched the previous flights, he understood the boatswain when he beckoned to him that we had made ready for a third shot, and so, with an answering wave of his spyglass, he disappeared from our sight. At that, having first turned to see that all were clear of the line, I pressed down the trigger, my heart beating very fast and thick, and so in a moment the arrow was sped. But now, doubtless because of the weight of the line, it made nowhere near so good a flight as on the previous occasion, the arrow striking the weed some two hundred yards short of the hulk, and at this I could near have wept with vexation and disappointment. Immediately upon the failure of my shot, the boatswain called to the men to haul in the line very carefully, so that it should not be parted through the arrow catching in the weed, 
and then he came over to me and proposed that we should set to at once to make a heavier arrow, suggesting that it had been lack of weight in the missile which had caused it to fall short. At that I felt once more hopeful, and turned to at once to prepare a new arrow, the boatswain doing likewise, though in his case he intended to make a lighter one than that which had failed, for, as he put it, though the heavier one fell short, yet might the lighter succeed, and if neither, then we could only suppose that the bow lacked power to carry the line, and in that case we should have to try some other method. Now, in about two hours, I had made my arrow, the boatswain having finished his a little earlier, and so, the men having hauled in all the line and flaked it down ready, we prepared to make another attempt to cast it over the hulk. Yet a second time we failed, and by so much that it seemed hopeless to think of success. But for all that it appeared useless, the boatswain insisted on making a last try with the light arrow, and presently, when we had gotten the line ready again, we loosed upon the wreck. But in this case, so lamentable was our failure that I cried out to the boatswain to set the useless thing upon the fire and burn it. For I was sorely irked by its failure, and could scarce abide to speak civilly of it. Now the boatswain, perceiving how I felt, sung out that we would cease troubling about the hulk for the present, and go down all of us to gather reeds and weed for the fire, for it was drawing nigh to evening. And this we did, though all in a disconsolate condition of mind for we had seemed so near to success, and now it appeared to be further than ever from us. And so in a while, having brought up a sufficiency of fuel, the boatswain sent two of the men down to one of the ledges which overhung the sea, and bade them see whether they could not secure a fish for our supper. Then taking our places about the fire, we fell to, upon a discussion of how we should come at the people in the hulk. Now, for a while, there came no suggestion worthy of notice, until at last there occurred to me a notable idea, and I called out suddenly that we should make a small fire balloon and float off the line to them by such means. At that, the men about the fire were silent a moment, for the idea was new to them, and moreover they needed to comprehend just what I meant. Then, when they had come fully at it, the one who had proposed that they should make spears of their knives cried out to know why a kite would not do. And at that I was confounded, in that so simple an expedient had not occurred to any before. For, surely, it would be but a little matter to float a line to them by means of a kite, and further, such a thing would take no great making. And so, after a space of talk, it was decided that upon the morrow we should build some sort of kite, and with it fly a line over the hulk, the which should be a task of no great difficulty, with so good a breeze as we had continually with us. And presently, having made our supper off a very fine fish, which the two fishermen had caught whilst we talked, the boatswain set the watches, and the rest turned in.
You've been listening to The Boats of the Glen Carrig by William Hope Hodgson, read by Paul R. Potts. This audio recording is made available under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 2.5 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org. Links for the project can be found at thepotshouse.org. Music for Chapter 12 is by Formication from the album Pieces for a Condemned Piano. This work is available at darkwinter.com. Sound effects are taken from the album Thaw, field recordings from Minnesota, available at wanderingear.com.